look great today. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I don't know if anybody's told you that or not, but you look wonderful. It's always nice when we get to meet some of the extended family that are here visiting. I recognize we have a bunch of families that are out visiting other places today as well. And, and uh, we don't have very many opportunities when we open up all of the overflows and there's people all the way to the back. And we're thankful that you chose today to come and celebrate this Resurrection Sunday with us here at Grace Assembly. This morning I want to talk for just a few minutes about the topic of come and see and some years ago, the Pepsi company, from some of you that may be my age, you may remember this, there was a slogan that they had that they were hoping would be an international slogan, which was, come alive with the Pepsi generation. Any of you remember that? Some of you are my age. That sounded really, really good in North America, uh, but it didn't quite cut it so well when it was translated into some other languages around the world. In fact, in Taiwan, uh, when the slogan was translated... It promised something that Pepsi couldn't deliver. In fact, instead of coming alive with the Pepsi generation, which is what they hoped, what it was translated as is, Pepsi will bring your ancestors back from the dead. And so, I don't know if that increased or decreased their sales or their profits, uh, but there's a world of difference between the two meanings. What their slogan promised was too impossible to be true. Uh, but the good news for us today is that we are living in a day where we celebrate that Jesus Christ promised something that was not too good to be true, for he has risen. The most single significant event in the history of the human race took place on the Sunday after Passover. It's the day that we're celebrating today, Resurrection Sunday, and it's not easy to try to give a full description of what it means, and especially if you're trying to talk to children and trying to explain to them. In fact, there was one third-grade Sunday school teacher who had just finished telling her kids in her class that Jesus was crucified and that he was placed in the tomb and that there was a big stone that sealed off the front of it so there was no way in and out and, and began to try to describe what it was like on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, the stone was rolled away, and she said to her third graders, do any of you know what Jesus said when, she came, when he came out? And there was a little girl in the back, and she, she raised her hand and was just shaking it excitingly, and, and the teacher looked at her and said, you know the answer? She goes, yes. She goes, what is it? And she stood up and she goes, Jesus went, ta-da! That's the way it was for those that heard about it first. Jesus was dead. They were eyewitnesses. They saw it all. They saw the arrest, the trial, the torture, the scourging, the murder. Jesus was dead, and if the crucifixion had not done him in, the spear that was pushed through his side settled the issue. And when the horror was over, a friend named Joseph of Arimathea requested Jesus' body so that he could bury him. And Pilate granted the request. And I've often pictured in my mind what it was like when those soldiers laid the cross down and Joseph and his friends had to pry the nails back out of the corpse of Jesus. As they cleaned his body and wrapped him in a white linen shroud, then Joseph took him and laid him in his own tomb. And a large stone was rolled over the front of the entrance to prevent any unwanted intrusion. In fact, it was 
the priest that went to the governor and said, listen, you remember that while this deceiver was still alive, that he said in three days that he would rise again. So would you give the order that the tomb would be made secure? Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead and the last deception will be greater than the first. And Pilate said, no problem. So he assigned soldiers to guard the tomb and sealed the stone. And Jesus' body lay there from Friday evening until Sunday morning, which is three days according to Jewish reckoning. And then suddenly, on Sunday morning... His body began to breathe again. And we read about it together when he stood up and he goes, Ta-da! I'm alive. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. As I read the first ten verses. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. I, I love that line. What do you say after you've been raised from the dead? Greetings. They came to him, and they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Father, I pray that over these next few moments that you will take the power and the impact of the resurrection and your word, and that you would plant it within our hearts, that we may, O oh God, come to know you in a new way and for those that may not know you today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work with them to draw them to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in summary, the scripture indicates to us that we had some seismic activity, an angelic visitation, a dead man that came alive again, and in fear, soldiers who were alive pretending to be dead, an angel nonchalantly sitting on a stone that had covered the tomb, that as he's sitting there, begins to speak and says, Do not be afraid because Jesus is risen from the dead. This is the account. It's simple. And yet it is absolutely, incredibly profound. In fact, I don't know if I would have anything to preach if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There would be nothing to worth, worth talking about. An interesting thing about this is that while the arrest of Jesus and the torture of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus was unbelievably public and everybody could see what was going on. Nobody was an actual witness while he was laying in the tomb to when his body began to breathe again. That was unwitnessed. In fact, 
It was something that was so hard to believe, even those that had been told that it was going to happen found it hard to believe. There was nobody in that moment that actually believed that Jesus was going to live again. One theologian said it this way, the greatest fact available to historians is the Easter faith of the first disciples. Their initial unbelief is actually evidence of the resurrection because it reveals that they did not expect it to happen. That's certainly what we see with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They didn't expect anything special. In fact, they had gotten up as the sun was rising and were making their way that morning, coming over the horizon into the, into the garden where his tomb was, and they expected to find a Jesus still dead inside the tomb. But when they arrived at the tomb, they were unbelievably surprised to discover that the tomb was open, the stone rolled away, the body of Jesus was gone. The burial clothes were lying on the stone in the shape of a body, collapsed and slightly deflated like a glove that had had the hand taken out of it. And according to the story, the angel of the Lord sitting there said to them, Do not be afraid. Those are appropriate words when you're walking to a grave that has been opened that you did not expect. Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And what we see within this story, in fact, what we see throughout the whole Bible, is time and time and time again, there's an invitation to come and see and then go and tell. And these are the four words that encompass really the whole gospel of the Christian life. If you have your bulletin, the card with you, you can turn that over and on the back there are Three points that I want to quickly make this morning, and if you'd like to use that to jot down some things, you may do so. The first is the invitation to come. When the women were afraid, when they fear that all hope is lost, when they arrive and see the guards, these strong, mighty men laying on the ground, having passed out from the fear of the earthquake and the stone rolling away, the angel sitting there on the rock begins to speak to them, and I love the words. The first thing he says to them is, come, come. Why does he do that? Because our first reaction would be to run, run. And he says, come, come, come here. I want, I want you to see this. And wrapped within the angel's words are this great theological truth. The stone that was rolled away was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that people could get in. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away because he was in a glorified body and could have gone right through it. But it was rolled away so that the angel could invite them. I want you to come in and see with your own eyes the invitation that he who was dead is now alive. My guess is that you understand this word, come. It's a welcoming word. It's a, a word of invitation. It's a word that was first spoken by the angel. And as we understand it, we can recognize that throughout the life of Jesus, Jesus, he often used this word, come, as he would invite others. In fact, there are some of you today that may have received an invitation from your neighbor that we had printed up. And they said, would you come to church with us today? Some of you families, maybe you're here because you were promised that if you go to church, we'll pay for lunch. And so you have chosen, I'm coming to church because preacher, I know that when you're done, I am going to eat big time. Whatever it may be, I want you to understand that there was an invitation. 
And some of you may today say, I am not worthy to stand before a holy God, and you would be correct. And some might say, I'm not good enough to come, and that would be right. But somehow the invitation gave a hope to your heart, and you came, and that's why uh, you're here today. And the invitation to you today is Jesus is still saying, would you come? Jesus was passionate about inviting people. He said, come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I love the words out of that that Jesus said, if you will come and follow me, I will work within your life and fashion you into all of the potential that I have given to you. But you've got to come. Shortly after Jesus said that, he was speaking to people who were brokenhearted and broken as people, and he said to them, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the invitation that God gives to those who are just beat down in life. Nothing has gone right. It seems as if everything you do falls apart in your hands and you're carrying the weight of the world. And Jesus says, come, come. The invitation is to come. And I will take your load. And what I give you in return is much lighter. The invitation was also given to children. Jesus said, let the children come unto me and do not hinder them for they, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Downstairs we're having a service going on and there are children that are learning about Jesus because they heard the invitation to come. Jesus throughout the gospels continues to say come and that doesn't always mean that it's an easy decision but what he comes as is he comes as a giver not a taker. Some of you here today in just a few minutes are going to have a decision to make. And what the enemy begins to whisper in your ear is if you come to Jesus, if you accept this invitation, think of everything you're going to have to give up. But I want you to know something. What he doesn't tell you is everything that Jesus comes to give you. Because anything you may have to give up to follow him is small in comparison to the gifts that a Savior brings to you. So the first word that was uttered to human ears after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the angel was come an invitation come here I want to show you something secondly there was an invitation to see the angel said to them come and see the place where Jesus lay I believe that in this aspect of seeing it reveals a personal experience there are a lot of people who have no personal experience with God. They know something about Him. They may have an impression of, from the media of maybe about what God is like. Maybe they have a grandparent who constantly prays for them and, and is a Christian, and so they get the impression of what God may be like from a family member. But that's not an experience. God is not one to, to be talked about or just to be recognized that he exists. He's there to be experienced because it's in the experience that you get to know him. And the only way to really know about faith in Christ is to have an experience with Christ. In fact, if any of you have any biblical knowledge at all, you'll remember the account where Jesus was speaking to a woman at the well. And he strikes up a conversation with her. And he eventually asks her about her husband. And she politely says, I have no husband. And Jesus stops and he says, you're right. The fact is that you've had five husbands, 
And the man that you have now, that you're living with now, is not your husband. And he tells her in so many words that he knows everything about her. He begins to open up her life to her. And she's so overwhelmed by what she hears. She gets up from that occasion and runs into town and tells everybody in the whole town, Come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, as I thought about that, I'm not sure that if I sat down with an individual who began to tell me every secret of my heart, that the first thing I would do is run to the church and say, you guys got to come, come meet this guy who knows every secret of my life. But so excited was she that she had experienced God in a brand new way. She could not wait to go and tell others about it. Because when you meet Jesus and you see Jesus and you experience Jesus, it changes everything. Some of you may be familiar with the experience of the Christian author, Lee Strobel. Lee, who at the time was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, began to attend, attend a church to appease his wife. She had come and experienced the Lord and had gotten saved, and she began to pester him. There's been a lot of people come to Christ because a wife pestered them, I'm just saying. She had been a new convert, and she said, I need you to come to church with me today. And so... He was an avowed atheist, but because he loved her, he decided to go. And he writes in his book, When I walked into the church as a skeptical unbeliever, my hypocrisy antenna was scanning the place for signs that people were just playing church. Because I knew that if I could look around aggressively and find any phoniness or opportunism or deception, I felt that I could use that as an excuse for rejecting the church on the grounds of hypocrisy. I could feel free to look at my wife and reject Christianity as well. He goes on to say that in that service, I couldn't find what I was looking for. Instead, what I found was people who had an experience that was very authentic. In fact, the place was filled with real people worshiping what seemed to be a real God. And he admits that for the first time, I began to glimpse who this God really is. And it changed me. And since that time, Lee has become a committed Christian. And he points to the truth. He says that when you experience the risen Christ, you cannot remain the same person. Come and see was the invitation. And this is the core piece of the Christian faith. It's something that every Christian shares. Jesus died on that cross so that we could live. He suffered and died in order that he would be the hope of the world. His death and his resurrection is the only path to salvation. There is none other. And when you come to grips with that, when you see his story as your story and you experience the living God, it will change you forever. And that is why the invitation is there. Come and see and experience. So today maybe your story starts with the, a moment of conviction that you can't begin to describe. You just know that God is doing something in your heart. Maybe it's a moment where his truth puts away your disbelief. Maybe it's a moment where you finally see a sliver of hope that God can restore your broken life. And that when you experience the risen Christ, you cannot remain the same person because it was an invitation to come and an invitation to see. There's also an invitation to share. The Easter message is this. Come into the presence of God. See what God has done. Experience him. And then when you've experienced him, go and tell the rest of the world what Jesus is doing. 
You remember that when Peter, at the time of the transfiguration, he wanted to build three tabernacles. He wanted to stay on the mountaintop. And for those of you that have been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know when we talk about a mountaintop experience, we're talking about an emotional time that we've had with the Lord where we feel so close to God and everything seems right and we love to stay there. We want those experiences, but the Lord Jesus told them, you're not building tabernacles here. Having had this experience, go down into the valleys and down into the towns and share with everybody what has taken place. And so the word for us today is that this Christian life, when you've experienced Jesus, is to be lived out in the world. It's to be lived out in the workplace and in the classroom and in the home, but not just in the church. In fact, I find it no coincidence that the end of this chapter is the Great Commission when he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. He said, When you come, you see what's going on, and when you see, you experience Christ, and then you go and you share with everybody what's taking place. I've discovered that one of the most interesting times, and this happens regularly in our church, is, is when couples go through that dating season and they've chosen one another and they get engaged. And, and it's always fascinating to me to see girls when they have a new ring on their finger, how they approach coming into the house of the Lord. It's, it's, they walk like this. <laughs> Trying to catch the glint and the diamond. And if nobody notices, they'll say something like this. Oh, it's so hot in here. I better take off my new engagement ring. They can't wait to share with everybody the great news of what's going on in their life because when something happens and it's exciting, you can't wait to share it with everybody. Once you experience the life-changing power of Jesus, you can't keep it quiet. You're either holding it in with all of your might or you really have not yet experienced Jesus. So the Easter message today is this. Come. You've been invited to come. And then you've been invited to see and experience the Lord. And then when you have experienced him, go and share what God is doing. In fact, if you are here today and you've never had an opportunity to ask Jesus to be your forgiver and your savior, then I'm asking you today, what is keeping you today from accepting the invitation to come? There's a man by the name of Bob Goff, and he was a new lawyer. When he was in college, he bought an old yellow truck from his dad, paid for it in cash, and as he went through college and law school, he couldn't think of a good reason to get rid of something that was already paid for, even though it was ugly. So he drove it around, and when he finally got a job in a law firm in Southern California, he recognized that with the little bit of money he had, he needed to buy a couple of shirts and a couple of suits rather than investing in another car, so he kept the old truck. And this old truck, the locks didn't work on it anymore, and it was about 50-50 if you turned on the windshield wipers if they would work or not. But after he got into this law firm, parking was so tight that the law firm offered every employee $200 a month to spend to park across the street at a really large, you know, elevated parking garage. And Bob said, since things were so tight, I thought, man, I'll just keep the $200 and I'll go park this someplace on the street. So he did. But as he was driving around to try to find a place where he could park his old yellow truck, he discovered the only place he could find was on the other side of the tracks and in a little bit more of a dangerous area, and it was a 20-minute walk, but he, for the $200 a month, did that. 
One winter day, he came at leaving the office a little bit early, and he walked around the corner, and from a block away, he could see that there's a man sitting in his truck. So he kind of slowly approached it, and he recognized, looking through, that the man had a, a grocery cart that was on the other side of his parallel parked truck, and the man was homeless, and he was sitting there, and so he walked up to the window and knocked on the window. The man turned and looked at him and waved, <laughs> then put his hands right back at 10 and 2, just where they're supposed to be. Bob was standing there going, well, this is awkward. So he knocked on the window again. The man turned and he rolled down the window about three inches and sticks his lips to the window and says, can I drive you somewhere? Bob says no as he reached over and he opened the door and helped the man out. He says, this homeless man stood up there, saw him, patted him on the shoulders twice and said, thank you. And started whistling and walked around and grabbed his cart and began to walk off. The next day when he parked in the same spot, he came back around and at the end of the day, the man was sitting there with his hands like he stopped at a stoplight. Ten and two. And he walks up and knocks on the window. The man looks at him and rolls down the window two inches and says, can I drive you anywhere today? He says, no. And he let him out of the truck. And they, he said, after a while, it, it, this, this went on for months. He said, it was like the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace without the furry hoods. He says, it just, he would get out, shake my hand. They begin to talk a little bit about what was going on, and he says, I never told him that I was a lawyer, but he began to share with me that alcohol had played a role in his life, and as a result of that, over time, he recognized that his reaction and his behavior after he became drunk removed him from the opportunity of living with his family. He said, I've been on the wagon for a while, and I'm hoping for better things in the future. One day, a few days after that, he came around the corner, and from a block away, he could recognize that that man was not sitting in his truck that day. And he goes, I begin to think, well, I wonder where, where my friend is at. And he, he walked up to the truck, and he looked inside, and he says, and as soon as I got there and looked inside, I knew what had happened. He said there were empty beer cans everywhere, half-smoked cigarettes. He said it looked like an anger. He'd swung an arm because he knocked, he knocked the knobs off the radio. And he said, and I suddenly recognized what has happened is that whatever wagon my friend had been on something happened that day and he fell off and the reason that he wasn't there is because he was ashamed he said I knew that if he had been there he was going to have to explain to me what was going on in his life and he said he didn't want to have to use those words so he just ran and I begin to think about that I said you know shame does that to people after we make a mistake we Understand that shame makes us silent. There are so many people that have started out with God and things have happened and in shame they said, I'm never coming back. I'm not going to be around. Just disappear. Shame steals your confidence. Shame pickpockets your hope. He said, I never saw that man again. He ran away and I never had the chance to tell him that it was okay. That's what Satan tells you about God today that your sin has caused so much shame in your life that Jesus will never want to speak to you again. Shame in our life causes us to say, I understand the resurrection and that he's alive, but if you knew what I did, you would know that Jesus may be able to forgive everybody else, but he, he can't forgive me. I've, I've fallen off the wagon too many times and I'm ashamed. And if that's you today, then I invite you to hear the words of the angel that he spoke to the two Marys when he said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is risen. Friends, when we come looking for Jesus, we have nothing to fear.
Not even the shame that grips us should cause us fear when we come looking for Jesus because he has invited us. Would you come? Would you see? Would you experience me? Because I'm the one that removes shame from your life. I take it away and I make you into a brand new creature. There are no fear in these words. Salvation is found in no other, no one else. For there is no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. The chances are good that someone's here today who needs to come and you need to see for yourself. And fear has kept you back from the very thing that you're longing for. And the psalmist declares to us, taste and see that the Lord is good. I close with this story. There's a true story that was published in Moody Monthly years ago. It's a heartbreaking story. It occurred in the life of one of Chicago's most well-known surgeons, Dr. Leo Winters. He was awakened at 1 o'clock in the morning one night from one of the nurses at the hospital where he was a pediatric surgeon. And they said, Dr. Winters, you need to get here right away. There's been an accident and there's a little boy that only your skills will be able to save his life. So he jumped from bed and threw on some clothes, grabbed his keys, ran out the door, jumped into his car, and began to make his way to get to the hospital. He knew that if he took a shortcut, that at 1 in the morning he might be able to get to the hospital just a few minutes early, and he's already been told that these minutes count. So he went through an area that he normally wouldn't drive through because it was a little more dangerous, and as he gets to a stoplight, he recognized, I'm not going to stop for long, but I at least need to stop and look both ways. And as he pulled to the light, he looked to the right, and it was clear. And as he turned to the left, there was a flash of a man wearing a red flannel shirt and a gray cap that came running and grabbed his door and flung his door open, reached in and grabbed the doctor and threw him in the road and jumped into the car and said, I've got to have your car, and he drove off. And the, the doctor never even had a chance to tell the man what was going on. This was in the days before cell phones. And so it was another 45 minutes before he could find a payphone and call a cab to, to come and get him and take him to the hospital. And he walks into the hospital an hour later, and as he came running up to the floor, the nurse that was there looked at him, and she put her head down and shook her head. She says, the boy died about 20 minutes ago. I don't know why in the world you didn't get here in time. But the father is in the chapel, and he is just unconsolable because he just doesn't understand what kept you. He didn't explain the story to his nurse, but he walked into the chapel, and there, there was a crumpled form of a man weeping uncontrollably, and as he walked to the front, he reached over, and just before he touched him, he recognized this was a man in a red flannel shirt holding a gray cap in his hand. That man, without ever knowing it, had thrown the one man out of a car to steal his car that could have saved his son. And he sat there wondering why he didn't come, I have had this impression on my heart all week that there is somebody here today that this is your last opportunity at the grace of God. And I don't know what it is that you have done or what it is that you are facing, but today you are facing an obstacle that if you throw the grace of God out of the car today and you walk out of here without having received Christ and experiencing as your Savior, you're not going to get another chance. This is it for you today. And so I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes for a moment, if you would, please. And that you would bow your heads. And I am going to start over here on the far left of the sanctuary, my right. And what I'm going to ask you to do is if Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart today, I'm going to ask that you would just simply look up and catch my eye. And I'm going to say, I agree with you. 
But today is the day that you're going to respond to the knocking of the door in your heart and accept the invitation to come. 